Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steinle, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, August 29th, 2021. And we're thinking of our friends and family and strangers that we're concerned about in Louisiana and are really all along the Gulf Coast as Hurricane Ida has been just making her presence known today. Absolutely. You know, it's we there were quite a few conversations about it on the Sunday shows today. I don't know if we'll be talking a lot about that necessarily because... It was all very preparatory, the discussions there, but we are very much hoping that the $4 billion that was invested to hold back any storm surge in New Orleans is able to hold up and keep people as safe as possible in that path. And just brutal that it's exactly 16 years after Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. So hoping that everyone there is safe and protected. Absolutely. I'm sorry, $14 billion, $14 billion That's all in the system. Yeah. A lot of bees on that billion. Yeah. Well, today we're going to be continuing mostly what we talked about last week, which was Afghanistan. We got some really great feedback, so hopefully <laughs> we're going to continue on that strain of useful and productive conversations and valuable criticism as yeah. well. And an interesting take for it this week. So we will get to that in just a moment. But first, quality questionable, Naomi. Did you have a quality or questionable moment this week? I have a quality moment. And what show does it come from? It comes from State of the Union. I looked at State of the Union and I also looked at Meet the Press. State of the Union was a doozy of an episode because it was a two-hour episode. Whew, two for one. Yeah, except when... We split up the shows and somebody gets to, gets to do two shows instead of three shows. Getting an extra hour does not seem like a deal. <laughs> Except what if it was in the person who did three shows and then they had to do there four? There would be an immediate renegotiation yeah, is yeah. what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, but this actually came, I believe, almost all the way at the end of that two-hour episode. And I still found it extremely valuable. It was a conversation that Jake Tapper had with two women who are prominent women in the Middle East. The first was the former Afghan ambassador to the U.S., Roya Romani. And the other was the global executive director of Equality Now, Yasmin Hassan. And the reason I found this really valuable is I've been... And I don't know if I talked about it last week. I think you did. Did I? <laughs> I know I talked about you off mic a lot. I don't know if it was on the podcast. Why don't you explain what you're well, anyway, mentioning? Well, anyway, I've been getting really frustrated with people who have a lot of opinions and thoughts and concerns and prayers and whatever else for the women and girls of Afghanistan. A lot of that concern is rightly so, right? Under Taliban control, it's going to be devastatingly different. 
But we're not hearing from people who know that experience directly or lived it directly or Muslim women directly. And it's been too long that we've been hearing from white men, white women about what should or should not be happening to the Afghan women and girls. And I was really pleased to see another take of this important, super important conversation. So both clips are from the Global Executive Director of Equality Now, Yasmin Hassan. And in this first clip, she talks about really what the realistic next steps are going to be as we try to advocate for women and girls of Afghanistan. They right. have said women will continue to have rights within Islam and the, inter the interpretation of Islam is what is problematic for us, given the history of the Taliban. But I feel that this is a moment where we have to watch and wait in a little bit because there are news, some news of people feeling very threatened, women being asked to leave their jobs at, at banks, women not going to school. But we have to wait and see. Now, the, the, the truth is there's no... Uh, there's no other alternative right now. This is what we have. So we have to watch and see. And I feel that the international community really have to press the Taliban on their treatment of women. So number one, schools, they say girls can get education. What kind of education? Is it going to be madrasa education or is it going to be education as we all know it? If women can go to work, can they go to work in all jobs or is it only going to be as teachers or as healthcare workers and nothing else? Will women be involved in the rebuilding of Afghanistan? Will they be involved in politics? Will they have you know, participation in the government? These are all things to be seen, right? So the current situation is dire, and I know we have to get as many people who are vulnerable out, but then for the future of Afghanistan, it seems this is what we have now. So we have to make the best of it, and I think the international community owes it to the women of Afghanistan to keep the pressure on and keep the negotiations open. This is the kind of take that I've been so eager for, where it's what we can actually do now, right? What the international community, what are actionable steps and trusting the leadership and insight from people, from Muslim women who understand the conflict directly. Well, I also really, I agree with that, but I also really like the way she is helping us understand that saying, oh, well, women will have education well, what kind of education, right? Women will have work opportunities. Well, what kind of work opportunities? Right. It's not enough to just say, we believe women will have education and work opportunities under the Taliban. Well, what are those? What do they look like? What are the different options within that sphere of living? Right. And that exist within the culture and society of, of Afghanistan, but then also are not imposed by Western expectations and desires for Afghani women and girls. This came up too when she was talking about the role of Pakistan that and what they can or should be doing to press for the plight of women and girls in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yasmin, you're originally from Pakistan and you think that Pakistan has an incredibly important role to play when it comes to encouraging the Taliban to accept a 21st century vision of the rights of women and girls. Right, absolutely. I think Pakistan has played a role in the past and is continuing to play a role. And I would like that role to be much more productive going forward, including on protection of human rights and women's rights in general. So I think Pakistan, if they have the ear of the Taliban and they must be part of this Taliban 2.0, then I would say pushing for women's rights and women's equality. There are studies now showing that the level of conflict in any society is directly related 
to the level of gender equality. And I think for, to, uh, for us to be in the 21st century, that's the way forward. And I think I would call on the government of Pakistan to really influence and not women's rights as a Western agenda. I'm also a, a member of Musawa, which is a global movement for equality within Sharia. It's Muslim women-led. And we would call on the government of Pakistan and other Muslim states to take a lead now on, in, and on educating and working with the Taliban on Muslims' rights and equality within Islamic law. Interp- so I think that's the, the part that really stood out to me is that this is not an interpretation of a Western agenda on what women's rights should look like, but really about how this moves a society forward and how it's led by the women of that society. Just really important insight here. Important insight and just critical voices for us to understand what's going on there, particularly as it relates to women's rights, as you said, Naomi, which have been invoked by lots of other people who aren't close to that lived experience. Exactly. Super, super refreshing. Brendan, did you have a quality or did you have a questionable moment? I had a quality moment that suggests something questionable. Oh my gosh. So this comes from Martha Raddatz. She was the host of This Week, and I should say I covered This Week, Fox News Sunday, and Face the Nation. And on This Week, Martha Raddatz spoke with Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and she had some really, not only really important questions for him, she listened very critically And she interrupted as necessary when things that he said didn't seem to align with her understanding of the situation. She was very much an active listener and participant and sitting forward in her seat during this interview. Take a listen to some of this exchange where she was asking him about the administration's commitment to Afghan allies. The administration keeps saying the commitment to our Afghan allies doesn't end on the 31st, but your spokesman said the airport will not be open on September 1st, and the Taliban obviously can't secure its safety even when U.S. forces are present. So how do you realistically think any American citizens or Afghan partners who are left behind will be able to fly out? What would you say to them on how to get out? Martha, a few things. First, um, Just uh, about 24 hours ago, a very senior Taliban uh, leader spoke on television and on the radio throughout Afghanistan and repeatedly assured the Afghan people that they would be free to travel after uh, August 31st. Uh, and he but, but Secretary Blinken, they do not trust. Uh, I mean, I know you say you don't trust the Taliban, but now you're telling me we should trust what the Taliban I'm said. Not, no, Those I'm people not, I'm in not, hiding. I'm not saying that, Martha. I'm not saying we should trust the Taliban on, uh, on anything. I'm simply reporting what one of their senior leaders said uh, to the Afghan people. He specifically cited as well uh, those who worked for Americans and uh, any other Afghan for whatever reason. So that's point one. Okay, but I want to go back to that. You're you're trying to reassure our Afghan allies. They're not reassured. Those interpreters who aren't getting out, they're not reassured by a statement like that. So what more can you tell them to get out? uh, How to get out? Certainly. And Martha, that was just point one. (laughs) Point two is this. So there you see right on his heels, she's like, what are you saying? We're supposed to be listening to what the Taliban say on TV and taking that as fact and as reassurance. And that's the first thing you're telling people who are nervous about the situation. Just listen to what the Taliban say. It's pure skepticism, pure ratted skepticism. Yeah. And now to be fair, 
Anthony Blinken goes on. He actually has many, many points. And let's join the conversation again as he's finishing his answer on this with his point, which would essentially be point five in his list of points. Finally, um, while the airport is critical, and we're determined to see that it, uh, that it remains open or that it reopens quickly. Uh, there are other ways to leave uh, Afghanistan, including uh, by road. And many countries border Afghanistan. That's there too, a very Talib- dangerous trip. Again, if the Taliban is um, serious about the commitments that it's repeatedly made in public, including nationally across the country, as well as in private, commitments that the international community intends to hold the Taliban to, uh, then uh, we'll find ways to do it. And we, for our part, Martha, are making sure that we have in place Uh, all of the necessary uh, tools and and, and means to facilitate the travel for those who seek to leave Afghanistan after August 31st. So again, we hear that pure Martha Raddatz skepticism, as you called it, Naomi, where she just interrupts there. That's a very dangerous trip. Because she knows, right? She's been to Afghanistan many times. She knows how dangerous it is and what it means to drive down a road like that. So just excellent job sitting forward in this interview and being present and calling into question things as he was bringing them up. She didn't even wait until he was done talking about them to inject that level of skepticism and her own personal knowledge of the situation and the space. That's why it's kind of a quality moment. But it's what's it suggests that is questionable is why don't we have this level of engagement on all the interviews, not just ones about war, right? Why don't we have that level of skepticism when people are talking about, for example, wildfires and how to control them, or talking about immigration and what's going to work or isn't going to work, or a whole host of other topics, COVID-19, for example, right? Why isn't this inherent skepticism leveled at Anthony Fauci and how fast or how slow government agencies are at getting us the guidance that we need to have access to the vaccine, for example, for young people, or access to the third shot, the booster. Like, there's so many examples where this level of engagement and interrupting sort of skepticism is necessary. So I'd like to see more of it, please. But good to see it here. Well, it's in seeing it, you realize how much it's absent in other interviews, right? Yeah. So the presence of this leaning forward, isn't that like the MSNBC tagline, lean forward or something? I can't remember. Yeah, it, it was for a while. I don't know if it still is. But it makes you realize when you have what we call the checklist interview, how infuriating it is. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, speaking of interviews, we've got a special way of dealing with these topics of Afghanistan today, and that is... A sort of good cop, bad cop game we're playing related to questions. Yes. So we were looking at our notes and I had a lot of good questions that I was quite pleased with. And you were the opposite, Brendan. Yeah, I was very frustrated. Yes. There was a lot of huffing and puffing when Brendan was taking notes. And so Brendan's going to be the bad cop and I'm going to be the good cop. And let me tell you, this is a change of pace for (laughs) us. Yeah, I know. It's great. I can't wait to see how bad your bad cup is (laughs) well let's start with something good because we were just talking about our frustrations a moment ago naomi what but go ahead and give me something that was a good question on the topic of afghanistan 
So I'm starting hot and I'm going with the best question I heard today. Mm. And that was the first question that I heard on the interview on Meet the Press when Chuck Todd talked to H.R. McMaster. Now, H.R. McMaster was the national security advisor, was a national security advisor under President Trump. He's had a slew of other Department of Defense roles and security advisory roles. What He's been around for a long time. He retired a couple years ago. And listen, this question by Chuck Todd really increased my faith in the Sunday news shows. Let me tell you. It's what we were looking for last week. Good morning. Uh, look, we're coming to the end of our presence in Afghanistan. And when you look back at 20 years, you've worn a few hats. Uh, when it comes to dealing with either helping to uh, create policy in Afghanistan or enact it. Um, what's been your biggest mistake or biggest miscalculation over 20 years? Well, I think we all share responsibility for it's not a 20 year war. It's a one year war fought 20 times over. And what what uh, the, the basis for the problems that we've encountered uh, in Afghanistan is certainly the enemies that we've been fighting there. As you can see today, enemies have a say in the future course of events. And and there, there are consequences when you surrender. Uh, to a terrorist organization, but it hasn't been a 20-year war. It's been a one-year war fought 20 times over with ineffective strategies based on flawed assumptions, flawed assumptions about the nature of the enemy, flawed assumptions uh, about what was necessary to achieve a sustainable outcome there. And of course, uh, what's sad about it is uh, th- this war ended in self-defeat, Chuck. I mean, we had a, a sustainable uh, effort in place uh, several years ago that if we had sustained it, we could have prevented what's happening now. But instead, what we did, Chuck, is actually we surrendered to a jihadist organization and assumed that there would be no consequences for that. And we're seeing the consequences today. So I think this question is fantastic because it acknowledges that H.R. McMaster is a quote unquote expert leader. I don't know. I don't know what the appropriate word is, but he's been involved in Afghanistan for a very long time. So hopefully that there's some learning lessons that he could share with the American public about why we're in the state we're in. Yeah. What I like is he's not just treated as an expert. He's treated as someone who has some responsibility for what has happened. And now let's ask you what you did wrong. Right. What's your biggest mistake or miscalculation? Excellent, excellent question. And this answer he's had, by the way, the 20 year, one year war fought 20 times over. I've heard other people describe it that way. Other things, uh, pieces that I've read describe it that way in recent weeks. And I understand what they're trying to say, that we had we kept changing our mission and our goals again and again and again as we fought the war. But we were there for 20 years. Like, let's not try to sugarcoat that yeah it seems more and more kind of silly of a description as we try to get out of this 20-year war and it's like no it wasn't 20 years like no it's been 20 years it sounds like it sounds like each day is the first day of the rest of your life it's like um yeah but also they connect and yeah <laughs> and also continuity. 40 <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and so that was the first question that chuck todd opened this interview with and then i wanted to also share the last question from this interview in which Chuck Todd forces this, like we said, this expert to confront the skepticism that many Americans 
feel about this 20-year war. Well, let me ask you this. I, I guess the, I want to put up something that the uh, Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, John Sopko, told Voice of America last month. He said, he said this about sort of the American government in general. We exaggerated, we over-exaggerated, our generals did, our ambassadors did, all of our officials did to go to Congress and the American people about, we're just turning the corner. We turned the corner so much, we did 360 degrees. We're like a top. And I just heard you just now, before I, I brought this quote up, saying, you know, the Afghan security forces were taking the fight. And, and I, I want to take it your word, but we look and we see what happened. And I think a lot of the American public says, oh, yeah, really? Do you understand the skepticism? Well, I do understand the skepticism, but you just have to look at the reality, Chuck. OK, hey, I agree. Afghanistan was not Denmark, Chuck, right? But it didn't need to be Denmark. Of course, there was corruption in the government. The security forces, there was corruption in the security forces as well that were hollowing out these institutions as we were trying to build them. But they were on a path to slowly strengthening over time. And what, what is, I, I think, most lamentable about the policy under the Trump administration and, and what the Biden administration doubled down on and failed to reverse is that we actually strengthened the Taliban and weaken the Afghan government and security forces on our way out. Hey, if we were going to leave, Chuck, why don't we just get the hell out? I mean, why did we do that? And so it was just impossible, I think, for the Afghan government to withstand the blows of not being included in the negotiations and then forcing the Afghan right. government to release you know, to, to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous people on earth who immediately went back to terrorizing right. the, the the Afghan people uh, and, and then to, to and, and then to you know set the timeline, say we're not going to support you, okay. withdraw uh, you know, the, the, the vast majority of our support for them. Brendan, I think I heard you huff at the with time the Afghan forces would have been ready. Yeah. <laughs> like what? 20 years is not enough time and an investment needed to be there another 20 years. I like that. He's also like, well, well, of course there was corruption in the government. Come on. Of course. That's that's a given. But things were going good. They were all right. They were getting better. We just needed to give them some time. I love it that his reality is that we should have been more patient, but the reality of others, of Americans who are impatient and disappointed with this situation is not realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what he gets to, what H.R. McMaster gets to, is actually some interesting criticism of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it's criticism that now McMaster doesn't necessarily say this is all what the Trump administration did, but he's really zeroing in on what Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo did before they left. When they did sit down, negotiated with the Taliban, did not invite the Afghan government into that negotiation, and then in that negotiation, agreed to terms such as the Afghan government will release all these prisoners, even though the Afghan government wasn't even a part of the negotiation. So yes, indeed, those are some absolutely legitimate points about how the withdrawal from the get-go, from the Trump administration's original planning... The design of the withdrawal yeah, itself. ...did not necessarily set up the Afghan government to succeed. Correct. But unfortunately, he doesn't really say, oh, this is what Trump did, and this was early on, and this is, you know, he mentions it, but he doesn't help us fully understand what he's talking about. Well, there's another, I have another really good question that kind of explains a lot of the weaker points of that negotiation, which we'll get to. I will say that some of McMaster's answers here are a little eye-rolly, but I do appreciate that he's 
at least acknowledging some of the points that Chuck Todd is making. That is completely fair. And I would agree with that completely. Brendan, let's see, bad cop Brendan, what is a bad question that you saw today? Where to begin? So many. Maybe I'll just begin where I, I guess I just have it listed up here. Or should I begin with the worst? Kind of you began with the best? You're the bad cop. You can do it however you want. All right. Let's just begin with Senator Ben Sass. <laughs> what show was he on? He was on this week. So we just talked, I just talked about Martha Raddatz doing a good job, a really good job, sitting forward, interviewing Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. So Senator Ben Sass, Senator from the state of Nebraska, Republican, was on, as we said, this week with Martha Raddatz. And this was just a terrible interview. I mean, all throughout. There was not at all any pressing or difficult questions for him So this interview with Ben Sass came right after we saw that interview with Secretary Blinken. And the question, the first question that Martha Raddatz had for him really sets up the tone of the interview because it's not a tough question. It doesn't even seem like it makes sense why she's asking Senator Ben Sass this question. Just take a listen to what she asks him. Good morning, Senator. I know you called for President Biden to extend the deadline, but you heard Secretary Blinken. They are not moving that deadline, which means there will likely be people left behind. How do you think these Afghans and American citizens will get out? Well, first of all, Martha, um, that interview was disgusting, and the American people have a right to be livid about it. There is clearly no no plan. There has been no plan. Their plan has basically been happy talk. Really? Disgusting? Yeah. His answer we'll talk about in a moment. But the question, look at the question. She says, there will likely be people left behind. How do you think these Afghans and American citizens will get out? Why is she asking him why is to... That inappro- why is that appropriate for him? Right. Why is she asking him to speculate how these citizens will get out? Like... Is he an expert on that in any way? Is he a... It makes no sense why you would even ask a senator a question like that. It's just very bizarre. Well, like, you could ask about the people who are not going to make it out before the August 31st deadline and the role of the Biden administration to help them come September without expecting the senator himself to have ideas as to how those people are going to get out. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. what specific ways do you recommend the Biden administration the Biden administration continue to support these people come September 1st, right? Or, you know, what have you been seeing are some of the beginnings of how people are going to get out? Like, there's other ways to think of, like, what are you hearing from the State Department? What are you hearing from your own relationships? As opposed to, like, how would you do it? Right. <laughs> White guy from Nebraska. <laughs> I don't know. It's a strange question, and it doesn't really present anything difficult for Ben Sass. Ben Sass's answer here, by the way, is that there is, he says, there is clearly no plan. There has been no plan. Their plan has basically been happy talk. Now, this sets up my ongoing frustration with the interview, which is that Martha Raddatz just spoke with Secretary Blinken, and Martha Raddatz is very aware that there is a plan, there has been a plan, that you can't evacuate over 100,000 people without a plan. Like, we've seen that plan in action, and it's pretty amazing how 
many people they've been able to get out of there. Now, there have been major problems, major issues, and hurdles, and maybe there wasn't a lot of contingency uh, planning around things in the beginning, but there's absolutely been a plan. And yet she doesn't push back on that obvious misstatement. But let's move on. Raditz goes on to ask Ben Sass a single question that is in any way pushed back on his entire thesis. Here is the hardest question she had for Ben Sass. We have so many different groups who want to turn Afghanistan into the global capital city of jihad, and the administration doesn't have a plan. They've got all this over-the-horizon talk that is laughably shallow. If you actually sit in intelligence committee meetings and you hear what over-the-horizon looks like, it is a pittance compared to what we just had on the ground. And, and, and Senator, but given that the Taliban said this date was a red line, given that ISIS is now carrying out these horrendous bombings and threatening more violence, wouldn't staying have put our forces more at risk? Joe Biden put our forces at risk by having no plan for how to evacuate. We are absolutely at risk, and we are at risk because the president has been so unbelievably weak. So did you hear Raditz's question there? She said, quote, wouldn't staying have put our forces more at risk, question mark? Why does she present that as a question rather than stating it as fact that further troop deployments are a danger to the troops who are deployed, right? Like, rather than inviting him to refute your premise, which is what she does here, why not ask him to defend his position? You see what I'm saying? Like, he should defend the position that it's worth putting more Americans at risk to continue the mission. But instead, she says, putting more Americans in place, does that really put them at risk? You see what I mean? Like, she is acting like this is a tough question, but she's inviting him to reject the toughness of the question. This is a really interesting point that you're making, Brendan. And this came up in an interview on State of the Union when Jake Tapper talked to Senator Mitt Romney. Now, Mitt Romney kind of describes about why it was a bad idea to withdraw from Afghanistan and that we should have had a military presence there. We should never have withdrawn to begin with, which was, I don't know, laughably out of sync with how most Americans feel. But I thought that there was this really interesting moment in which Romney, like Sass, tries to make the claim that pulling military troops out makes them more in danger. And Jake Tapper has a very important counterpoint, I think, what you were looking for. By the way, we have thousands of troops, tens of thousands of troops in Germany, in South Korea, in Japan. Why are they there? They're there not as favors to those countries, but because we believe that keeps us and the world safer. And the idea that we would keep several thousand troops in Afghanistan as long as necessary to keep us more safe is, of course, the appropriate policy to take. But these political slogans come in the way and endless wars. The war is not ended when only one party pulls out and the others are continuing to fight and now fight with more aggression. Look, going forward, we're going to have to recognize we're in a much more dangerous position and we're going to have to invest, I'm afraid, more resources to keep ourselves safe. I, I, I've heard that argument before about the fact that we, the U.S. service, the US service members uh, are stationed in, in Germany and, and, and Japan and in South Korea. But it's also true that they're not being killed uh, by IEDs or by an insurgent group. 
and, and, you know, I've talked to, look, veterans like everybody else are all over the map when it comes to this decision and this horrible week and this and that. But I have talked to some veterans, conservatives even, who say, I'm glad we're getting out. I don't want any more gold star, star families created. Yeah, I, the, the, uh, the reality is uh, we're, we're even, even have a greater reason to main troops in a place where there is hostility. Where, because those people are going to bring their hostility to America and to Americans and to our friends, whether we like it or not. The idea that somehow we can pull out of a dangerous place where radical, violent jihadists are organizing, that we can pull out of that and that's going to stop them. Well, that's fantasy. They're going to continue in their effort to regroup and to come after America. So in this instance, you do hear Jake Tapper kind of say it as fact as the longer we're there, the longer military troops are in danger with violent groups targeting them. Right. It's an important premise. But if you keep more troops in a dangerous place, it's more dangerous for those troops. And I thought it was interesting that Jake Tapper kind of cushions that within the context of there are veterans that feel this way who question the value of their service there of the 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 value of their deployments in a place that is not changing yeah absolutely absolutely well you know that kind of takes me to another point and you had mentioned as well the number of americans who think that we should be withdrawing from afghanistan so i just want to point out later in this week and there's a lot about this week in my frustrations there's a panel discussion with a number of experts But they all seem to be in agreement that it was probably a bad idea to pull out of Afghanistan. Take a listen to this question that Martha Raddatz has for Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And and Vivian, President Biden promised retribution. He said the strike on ISIS-K would not be the last. And and of course, they're looking at everything there now. Former Obama Defense Secretary Leon Panetta said he thinks the U.S. will have to go back into Afghanistan, to John's point, that over-horizon is not the same as being on the ground. No, it's not. And uh, one of the things that we've seen sort of in uh, in, collab- in conjunction with the deterioration of security in the last two months is the fact that we've had uh, less and less intel collection on the ground, you know, troops not being able to secure the premises there, uh, ISIS being able to sort of embed itself in mountains, in homes, to be able to operate in the way they were. Remember, 20 years ago when the attacks of 9-11 happened, technology was far more less sophisticated sophisticated than it is now. Now you have the technology on top of the fact that there is no U.S. presence, a limited intel collection. It really raises concerns about uh, what is happening on the ground and the potential for another terrorist strike down the line, which is why so many people were so against us withdrawing in this way in the first place. So there's our favorite character in this whole story, Leon Panetta, once again, being cited for another opportunity he had to share his thoughts saying that the U.S. will have to go back to Afghanistan. Raditz again quoting him without any criticism of the idea that, well, you didn't really succeed in what you said was needed the last time we were in Afghanistan. And then you have Vivian Salama saying that so many people were so against us withdrawing in this way in the first place. And I thought, but surely, surely somebody in this panel will remind the audience that most Americans support withdrawal. However, many people were so against withdrawing, there were many more who were for withdrawing, right? Isn't that important context to provide in this panel discussion? Where is the polling 
I thought. You know, ABC loves to cite their polls. Where are the polls on this? But then, guess what? Later in the panel, there was polling brought up, a new poll. I thought, oh, I spoke too soon, right? They're, they're going to cite these polls. So let's take a listen to the conversation on polls a little bit. Oh, and by the way, this is Martha Raddatz speaking with John Carl. John, I want you quickly to talk about this poll, uh, the political fallout for President Biden. Our new poll with Ipsos shows just 38% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of Afghanistan. 84% say U.S. troops should stay in Afghanistan until all Americans are evacuated. That's not going to happen. And and here's the interesting thing about that poll question. The second one you mentioned, 84%. It's consistent. It's one of the only things I have seen for years, a question where Democrats, Republicans, and independents all over 80% say exactly the same thing, that we should stay until all Americans are evacuated, as you point out not going to happen. A really tough thing for President Biden to face. So this was not at all the polling discussion I expected. The focus in this discussion was on some interesting questions that was in the new ABC News Ipsos poll about how many Americans want Biden to keep troops there until all Americans are evacuated. But nowhere is there discussion of how many Americans think that we should still withdraw even though that was kind of the entire focus of this conversation, this discussion. So I thought, well, that's odd that they didn't bring it up. Let me look at the actual poll itself. Surely it asks this question about how many people support withdrawing troops and ending the war in Afghanistan. Nope, the poll didn't ask that question. But interestingly, ABC News' headline about this poll was very different from Ipsos' headline about this poll. Let me read to you the headline from ABC News. Overwhelming bipartisan support for keeping troops in Afghanistan until all Americans Afghans who aided U.S. out. That's the headline from ABC News. Ipsos's headline is, Most Americans think the end of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan makes no difference on our safety from terrorism. That's very different. Wildly different takes from the same exact poll. So I wanted to quickly say to you all, like, here's how many Americans support us ending the war in Afghanistan. The number was something like 70% uh, by a polling firm back in July. Those numbers have changed over time. And they've also changed based on how the questions are asked recently in some other polls. So we're going to go ahead and link to a great article that 538 did just a few days ago called What Americans Think About the End of the Afghanistan War and Biden's Handling of It So Far that goes into a lot of this, including some of the polling questions that are asked and how they're asked, because it kind of changes over time. But the bottom line is that more Americans support ending the war than continuing the war. And that's not even acknowledged in this panel discussion. That feels true to almost all the conversations we heard last week as well. Yeah. I think my conversations that I saw on State of the Union Meet the Press kind of acknowledge the dual motivations or dual reality that Americans, that we are not winning. We did not win the war in Afghanistan, right. but it was time to leave. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, just from this piece from 538, an August 12th or 16th survey, they say, from the AP, reported that Americans now feel the war in Afghanistan was not worth fighting, 62% to 35%, making it as unpopular as the war in Iraq. But you wouldn't know it from these conversations, which relies so heavily on 
old national security hands and hawks. So I have one more good question that I thought was important to note. And it was a question to Senator Chris Murphy on State of the Union. Now, Chris Murphy is a Democrat from Connecticut. He is one of the few Democrats in Congress right now who's actually been a staunch defender of President Biden's actions in Afghanistan. There's been a lot of people who have been kind of what they say frustrated with the execution or we should have stayed or whatever it might be. And Chris Murphy has made the point that like this was the right call. It's just it's a really hard situation. And Jake Tapper took the time or, or took the moment to ask a defender of President Biden, someone not from the administration, but someone who thinks he's doing a good job or doing the best that he can, I should say, and answer some of the what I think are legitimate criticisms of the Biden administration. You um, heard uh, Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton from neighboring Massachusetts uh, earlier in the show. He's been unsparing in his in his criticism of um, not the decision to withdraw, but the way that the evacuation has gone. He told New York Magazine, quote, even if you completely agree with the Biden administration's decision to withdraw, the way they have handled this has been a total effing disaster. Now, I know I know you disagree. I know you agree with President Biden and Jake Sullivan, who was on earlier, saying that no matter how the U.S. withdrew, it was going to be chaotic. But do you really think there's no way that this could have been planned better in terms of evacuating American citizens or legal permanent residents or Afghan special immigrant visa applicants? No way at all? No, uh, listen, of course, there's no way you run a massive evacuation operation like this and not have things you would have done better in retrospect. Um, But I understand the point to be from Representative Moulton and others that we should have begun the mass evacuation earlier uh, and that would have um, solved for some of the chaos we're seeing today. I think there's a couple problems with that. The first is we were under the belief in the spring and summer of this year that the Afghan military would stand up and fight. And the military and the government was telling us that if you start the mass evacuation of the embassy of Afghans, it is going to sap the will from our soldiers to stand up and defend the country. It was logical to believe that a mass evacuation too early would have actually led to the result that we were trying to avoid, which was the collapse of the government. Second, even if we had begun that evacuation earlier, there still would have been, frankly, um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Afghans that upon the collapse, the unexpected overnight collapse of the government would have rushed the airport. There still would have been the scenes that we're seeing today with all of the incumbent security threats that are attached to it. Um, So in retrospect, obviously the government and the security forces of Afghanistan did collapse. And so we probably should have started that evacuation earlier. But we were laboring under the belief that they wouldn't. And we were trying not to take steps that would lead to that overnight collapse. So I I, I think that is the difficulty with just suggesting that we should have begun all this earlier. Now, I think this question is fantastic because it's what we've been wanting to hear, really, that really, is there no way this could have been done better? And kind of hearing the different scenarios that the administration was trying to avoid and realizing we ended up with that same exact scenario anyway, faster than we were anticipating, is just such a profound disappointment in the worst case scenario. But I thought Chris Murphy here did an excellent job kind of explaining the rationale and also being understanding of the criticism itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it does make you think that like almost any choice that was made would have ended in a very complicated and 
potentially dangerous and deadly situation here. And the, you know, kind of what he paints in this answer makes me think about what it would have been like if the Trump administration went ahead with their original timeline, right? And it happened to be the ones executing it rather than kind of kicking it down the road to the Biden administration. In the interview with Congressman Moulton, Moulton makes the point that if this had happened with President Trump, that there'd be far fewer commitments to getting Afghan allies out of the country who had Mm. helped us. Right. Well, and we know for a fact that the Trump administration had basically not processed a lot of those Afghan allies with their with their papers to be ready to evacuate them. And that that was some of the slowness of the Biden administration in trying to process all that paperwork that the Trump administration essentially just sat on and did nothing to move forward with. Also, I I reckon you would hear way less criticism from people like, for example, Lindsey Graham, which takes me to what I think is the worst question that I heard this week and probably in any single interview about this topic over the last few weeks. It's the interview that Ed O'Keefe conducted on Face the Nation. He was standing in for Margaret Brennan, standing in for John Dickerson, and he decided to ask Lindsey Graham this question. We're going to have hostages left behind American citizens. I would counsel the Biden administration, do not legitimize the Taliban, do not recognize them, because if you do, you're going to put Americans at risk all over the world, because other terrorist organizations will see, aha, the best way to get America's attention and legitimacy is to kidnap some Americans or people who fought with America. Uh, We're in a very dangerous situation in Afghanistan, and I worry about the consequences of how we deal with Afghanistan can affect our footprint all over the world. Sure. In your view, what kind of consequences should the president face for the decisions he made on Afghanistan? Well, did he get good advice and turn it down? Uh, Did he get bad advice and take it? What the hell happened? Whose decision was it to pull all the troops out? Was it good advice ignored? I just don't know. I think he should be, be facing a lot of consequences here because the one thing he wanted to do, and he's a decent man, it's not about him being a decent man, is he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan and make sure we didn't have to deal with it in the future. He's done the exact opposite. Uh, General Biden's fingerprints are all over this. He's created the conditions for ISIS to flourish in Afghanistan. I was floored when I heard this question. Lindsey Graham, as you heard at the start of that, talked about the consequences for America in how we deal with Afghanistan. Ed O'Keefe asks... What kind of consequences should the president face for the decisions he made on Afghanistan? Basically saying, how should the president be punished for the choices he made on Afghanistan? It's an invitation for Senator Graham to accept the premise. What's the premise of the question? The premise of the question is that the president made decisions that should now be punished, right? That there should be consequences faced by him for these bad decisions that he made. That is not a an objective question by any means of the word. And it is not at all suggested by the answer that we heard before it. Ed O'Keefe just introduces this as a new topic. The new topic is, let's now talk about the president and how he should be punished. What is this, One America Network? I mean, this is straight out of right-wing media, this type of question. I couldn't understand it. And then, later on, Ed O'Keefe, he's not satisfied 
with Senator Graham's answer here. And he prods him once again and gets more specific. And we kind of learn why Ed O'Keefe asked that question. Senator, one thing, one word I don't hear you using is one you were using before the attack on Thursday. And that is you called for his impeachment over Afghanistan. Do you still feel he should be impeached over this? Yeah, yeah, I think it's dereliction of duty. There it is. Ed O'Keefe, in the question we heard earlier, was teeing up Lindsey Graham because he wanted Lindsey Graham to call for President Biden's impeachment. Ed O'Keefe wanted to talk about impeachment. Senator Graham didn't go there. And so Ed O'Keefe had to bring up the word himself. Which is kind of a waste of time because the likelihood of it happening is pretty much zero. And it's not like there's a huge flux of people in Congress who are talking about this. Like, why spend the time on talking about this one small sliver of Congress who's who's going that far, you know? Right. Well, I mean, once again, and we've talked about this type of question before, he's asking Graham to be more Graham, right? He's egging him on. Rather than trying to have a real conversation about the situation or an honest interrogation of a very important and powerful senator in the national security space, he wants to invite Graham to make his case for President Biden's impeachment. And after Graham suggests that it's dereliction of duty, after he gets Graham to talk about impeachment, you'd think he might have some challenging follow-up questions about that. Nope, not a single one. And also not a single question about Graham's decisions or statements or votes on Afghanistan over the last few decades. Just an awful, awful interview. But the terrible interviewing by Ed O'Keefe isn't just limited to interviews with Republicans. You'd expect Ed O'Keefe, if he's parroting the types of questions you'd ex- you'd have on a right-wing media platform, you'd expect him to have some at least tough questions for Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. But no, there aren't really tough questions for this Biden administration official either. It's like, I just, I don't even understand what Ed O'Keefe is doing. Ed O'Keefe, in his interview with national security advisor Jake Sullivan, actually has a lot of time with the national security advisor. He asks him 12 questions, but hardly any of them are critical difficult questions. A lot of them are just kind of informational. What's going on now? What do we expect? Well, what do you plan to do? What is this going to, you know, they're very informational questions, right? Does the U.S. plan to leave State Department personnel in Afghanistan after Tuesday? So there you go. Just what is the administration going to do about this, right? Informational questions. He has about four of those questions in this interview. Not at all critical. Then he's got a few minor critical questions. For example, here's one of those. Economic leverage I get because you can squeeze a a country's official with sanctions all you want. But if you're pulling all your U.S. military equipment out of there, if you're pulling out all, if not most, of your diplomatic personnel out of there, what on earth kind of leverage is there left? So there, Ed O'Keefe, he's being skeptical. He's saying, hey, you say you have this leverage, but I don't understand it. What, what kind of leverage do you have? All right, so that's good. It's a little, little critical question there. Here's another one of those somewhat critical questions. Does he still have full confidence in his entire national security team? Now, this is one of those questions that really suggested to me what Ed O'Keefe is doing here. This is the kind of question we would hear at a White House briefing, right? It's the premise of it is, that the national security team has failed and Biden might want to fire somebody because things haven't gone very well, right? Does he still have full confidence in his national security team? 
the question being suggesting that maybe he shouldn't have confidence in this team. But it's not actually a really tough question, right? It doesn't say, hey, this so-and-so person has repeatedly predicted things that didn't come to pass, or this person has been in charge of a department that has fallen down in this effort. Does the president think that this person is still good at their job? It's not specific enough to actually be really critical. It's just suggestive. And then he goes on with a series of really bizarre questions, three, in fact, that are just about internal things that have nothing to do, really, with anything of importance. Rest of this mission. The whole goal here was to get U.S. military forces out of Afghanistan by September 11th. Whose idea was it to use 9-11 as the deadline? So they didn't explicitly say 9-11, they said four months, and you guys all looked at the calendar and realized 9-11 was there and said, okay, let's try to do it by then. This is not hard-hitting journalism. This is not a hard-hitting question when you have the National Security Advisor and you're just asking about why they anchored it to 9-11 versus 9-2 or 9-6. What's missing here are truly critical questions, the type of critical questions you might expect from somebody who has shaped his entire episode around criticism of the Biden administration. Why don't we have critical questions? What might these look like? Here's a few that I just thought up real quick. If you knew that the Afghan government would have collapsed as fast as it did, what would you have done differently about the evacuation situation? Very similar to the one we heard from Jake Tapper, right? Yeah, the, that's very similar to the Chris Murphy interview. Mm-hmm. Or how about this? Why were 13 service members vulnerable to an attack from a suicide bomber when you knew for a fact that there was a credible security threat, right? Why wasn't there more done to protect these people? Nope, no question about that. How about another one? If you don't know how many Americans are in Afghanistan, how can you be in communication with all of them about when and how to get them out? which has been claimed, right? The Biden administration claims that they can get these people out, but they also keep asserting that they don't know how many are there. Yeah, it's a real cluster of what is actually believable. Right. Here's another one. Would having Bagram Air Base open right now be helpful in a situation like this, or would it be unhelpful? There's been a lot of criticism of the Biden administration for closing Bagram Air Base. And they have tried to defend the situation, the Biden administration. They've said that the military suggested closing it. They said that Bagram is like an hour and a half drive out of Kabul. And it's not really feasible to have 100,000 people driving down a single road to get to an air base. That's kind of a dangerous situation. But it's still worth asking about since it is brought up again and again on these Sunday shows. But no, no question about that. Just question after question that was not asked. Which actually would change the viewer's information, their knowledge about the situation, where you could walk away with some new information. The takeaways are missing. Rather than asking whose idea it was to use 9-11 as the deadline. Correct. He should have just said, oh, that was, uh, that was Paul. Paul. It was Paul's idea. <laughs> text Paul. Yeah, text Paul. <laughs> well, Brendan... For Bad Cop, you really brought in and shared the frustration and your disappointment in these questions. Yeah, I hope I lived up to the Bad Cop name. You did quite well. I'm, I'm quite impressed. <laughs> I did have some good questions, but I didn't mention them because we're sticking to our roles here. Yes. I will just say, Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace did a pretty good job, Any anyone he was talking to, either someone from the administration or Mitch McConnell, who he spoke with. So Mitch McConnell was on a Sunday news show. Yeah, wow. That's news in, its, in itself. Wow, 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 wow. 
Yep. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. I think it's going to be about Mitch McConnell. Who is somebody you've been meaning <laughs> to call? Interesting. To chat with, to have a conversation with, and check in with them. Exactly. Like, I just checked in with Mitch McConnell this week. I called him up and I said, hey, Mitch, how's it going? I, I mean, I haven't heard from you in a while. That is false, friends. No, I did not do that. But it's so easy to just kind of fall out of the loop and kind of postpone a conversation, good or bad conversation. It's, it's so easy to just like postpone, postpone, postpone. And, and then it feels so awkward because it's been so long. So, you know, give them a call, send them a text, see how that person's doing. Yeah, this is actually a really good one because it's very easy to say, you know what? It's in their court. I texted them. They never texted me back. Or I called them months ago and they never called me back. It's they, on them. But like maybe they were in traffic and it was a bad day and then they forgot. And then, you know, like whatever. Just call them again. Yeah. Give it another try. Give it another try. I like this challenge. This makes me happy. I hope everyone has refreshing and needed conversations. It's not always easy. (laughs) No. If you have any thoughts about today's episode, me as good cop, it was strange, but it felt a little nice. Yeah, it was nice. You actually had some really good questions on your shows. Thank you. I thought so too. You are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can find me on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore. You can follow me at Beastitle. You can follow the show at Polylogcast. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend or rate us or write a review. Any of those things would be delightful. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.